Welcome back to Kentucky History and Haunts for part three of the Alma Kellner story. In case you missed the first two episodes, go on back to episode 22 and 23 and then come back here. I want to give a quick shout out to Sean M. Heron, the author of the book Louisville's Alma Kellner Mystery. So much research, so much information on that case. It's just a great book. So go check that out. And to recap, where we left off last time, Joseph Wendling was being escorted back to Louisville from California by Captain Carney. Once they got back to Louisville, he was put on trial, and we are going to pick up on day two of that trial. The first person to take the stand on the second day of the trial was Fred Kellner, Alma's dad. Really the only interesting part of his testimony was the fact that he'd never gone to identify his daughter's remains, remember his cousin Frank had done that, and he also did not attend his daughter's funeral. Alma's aunt was next and she talked about how she helped Alma pick out clothes for mass that day and she was able to testify that the stocking and shoe found on the victim appeared identical to the ones Alma had left in that day. The court heard from the drugstore owner and the postman who had seen Alma on the street that day. And then there was Anne Grail who had decided to go to St. John's that day. She ran into Rosa Staubel on the way there and they went in together. Now they both saw Alma at the altar railing towards the front of the church They described her as wearing a checked coat and a red hat. Now, this is interesting. They did recall seeing Joseph Wendling enter the church, but Anne specifically also remembered another man who came in through the back of the church dressed in a dark overcoat who sat on the other side of the church and only stayed a moment before leaving. Rosa did not recall seeing this other man, But another key piece of information was that Anne mentioned that the child had seemed to be impatiently waiting for someone while she was in the church and that she kept looking back over her shoulder towards the entrance. Another woman saw Alma that day. Her name was Elizabeth Dole and she was in church for the entire service and she remembered seeing Alma come in towards the end. And she commented, that the little girl seemed, quote, right fidgety. So this corroborated the other testimony about Alma seeming impatient. Now, Father Schumann was called next, and he was on the stand for what seemed like a very long time. He said Joseph Wendling was hired on as a janitor about a month before Alma's disappearance, and that he left without notice a little over a month after she went missing. The janitor before Joseph, named Benedict Thomas, still lived on the church property. Some of Joseph's duty that day included stoking the fire, ringing the bells, lighting candles, and locking the door when the service was over, unless it needed to stay open for whatever reason. And he was responsible for keeping the fires going and for all the cleaning, along with Lena. He explained the layout of the rectory to the jury. He said Lena and Joseph slept in two rooms in the rear of the second floor, which could be accessed from the main staircase or a back staircase off the main floor kitchen. 
Father Schumann told the court that he did not personally know Alma Kellner and that after mass that day, he was entertaining a visitor, Father Vandepit. Schumann said he was unaware the girl was missing until seven o'clock that evening when he got a phone call asking if anyone strange had been hanging around the area. Shortly after that, Patrolman Quill showed up and that is when Joseph Wendling actually held the candles while the police and Father Schumann searched the area. Now, something interesting comes next. Father Schumann said that he had to talk to Joseph about a strange smell that was lingering in the church, to which Joseph responded he'd been burning some old rags that had oil on them. And then on January 14th, Joseph was gone. That day, Frank Fair had actually stopped by the church to speak with Father Schumann, so he wasn't exactly sure what time Joseph left, but he noticed he was gone when his nightly duties hadn't been completed. During the cross-exam, Father Schumann was asked to talk about his relationship with the Wendelings. His acquaintance, Father Vandepit, the one he was with on the day of the disappearance, had recommended Joseph. And when he went to their home to meet them, he said they seemed like good enough people for the job. There was nothing out of the ordinary about them. He said he really didn't see them much during that period that they worked for him, other than when they were around performing their duties. So he really didn't know them that well. Nothing struck out as odd to them. But before he was finished, he stated to the court that he, quote, never accused Wendling, never suspected him, and found nothing unusual about his conduct during the time. When Father Schumann was finally finished, they called Dr. Ellis Duncan, the county coroner, to the stand, and he went over, again, all the details of the discovery of the body on May 31st. And he mentioned that of all the ribs in the skeleton, only two were not broken, and that one of the hands was never found. Again, a large portion of the skull was missing, and he told them the body was just under four feet long and the foot was seven inches in length, which indicated to him that the skeleton belonged to a child between seven and 10 years old. And remember, Alma was eight. And again, the body was just too far gone to determine cause of death or to determine if she'd been a victim of sexual assault. Now, during the cross-exam, he was challenged a little bit about which injuries were made pre- and post-mortem, so they were very interested in that. Now, the former janitor, Benedict Thomas, also testified. He had been a janitor at St. John's for about a year before Joseph took over. And remember, he was back on the job a month after Wendling skipped town. But on the day Alma went missing, he said he had been working at a company called Smith & Nixon's as an elevator man and assistant janitor. He said that job started at 7 a.m. and he didn't leave until around 6 o'clock that night. And he also said that he had gone to mass that morning and attended a church service that evening. So he was just a busy guy. All of his time was accounted for. He told the court that yes, he had still lived on the church property for a while after he started his new job, but he couldn't pinpoint whether or not he was still living there on the date Alma disappeared. So he knew everything he did that day, but he couldn't say whether or not he was living on the church property. Interesting. 
He went on to say that when he did move out, he didn't remember there being a carpet over the door in the room, but when he got back, there was one. And he said that the last time he'd seen that carpet, it was clean in storage, but now it had dark stains on it. Once they finished up with Benedict and a few other people, it was time to bring up the police, and they started with Detective Charles Simon. He was one of the first on the scene, and he described in detail both the crime scene and the inspection of Lena and Joseph's room the following day, specifically noting the bloody clothing found in the trunk. Next was Deputy Coroner William Kammerer, and he was the one who found the tin box with the knife and the three razors in it that seemed to have blood and human flesh crusted in them. And he was also the one who found the girl's undershirt with blood on it wadded up in a closet. So they're really painting a picture for the jury. And then they brought in Richard Height, who was the man who inspected the furnace rooms and found the foot. So after all of that, they called it a day. The next day, they questioned Alma's dentist, Dr. Ruby, who talked about Alma's dental records, but also examined the teeth found and remarked that they did appear to be that of an eight-year-old. At first, he seemed to be giving a good argument that the teeth found at the church were Alma's, but it sounds like he kind of got obliterated on cross-exam, and I have to imagine he left the court with more questions than answers. When they put Patrolman Quill on the stand, he explained that he'd gone to see Father Schumann both the night Alma went missing and again the next night, and the two were joined by Joseph, who escorted them by candlelight through the church as they searched for signs of Alma. He also told the court that yes, he did go into the basement of the church, but he didn't make a thorough search. He also didn't go into the cellar of the school building or any of the sheds on the property. He also noted that he encountered Joseph alone on the second night, and when it was just the two of them, Joseph basically told Quill not to work too hard because other people had been there investigating all day, so he should just kind of back off. So he finished up and was replaced on the stand by Frank Fair, whose entire testimony was a little odd. The thing that stuck out the most to me was that Apparently, everyone thought he went to Alma's funeral, like, on behalf of the family, but he didn't, which meant there really wasn't anyone there from the immediate family. However, he had been the one to view the remains when the body was found. Now, one testimony that seemed very important was that of Detective Sergeant Thomas Burke of the San Francisco Police Department. He was asked to talk about the arrest and questioning of Joseph, which was done in the presence of both their police chief and the DA. And here's what Joseph told Sergeant Burke. He said he'd left Kentucky because he wanted to get away from his wife. He shaved his mustache, not as a tool of deceit, but because a girl down south didn't like it. He also said he was aware there was a reward for his arrest, and he admitted to having seen Alma several times in the past. So to the San Francisco police, he admitted that at least he knew who she was. Later, they called Dr. Vernon Robbins. He was Louisville's go-to chemist, bacteriologist, and physician at the time. He confirmed 
what Dr. Ruby had said about the teeth found being that of an eight-year-old. He also testified that the stains found on the carpet collected from the scene were both blood stains and charcoal. On the undershirt from the church closet, he found both blood and urine. And he confirmed that it was blood and muscle fiber found on the knife retrieved from the Wendling's room. And then after hours and hours of testimony, finally it was time for Captain John Carney to go under oath and tell his story. But a lot of what he talked about was actually the process of apprehending Joseph and bringing him home. And it seemed like this was to reiterate that they'd done everything by the book. During his testimony, it was revealed for the first time that Carney had in fact been in the cellar of the church before the day the body was found, but he didn't really stay to check it out because it was too dark. When Joseph Wendling took the stand, he completely denied having anything to do with the murder, And interestingly enough, he said under oath that he'd never even seen her, which I believe contradicted what one of the police officers said in their earlier statement. He confirmed he'd closed the doors to the church around 10.30 a.m. that day when everyone was gone. And he said he didn't even know that a child was missing until about 9 p.m. that night when Officer Quill came to search the church. He went on to say that he'd put the carpet out in that one room because... Father Schumann asked him to spruce up the place, and that was what he had to work with. And when confronted with the gory knife, he said, well, wait a minute now, that knife was used by my brother-in-law to pull a nail out of a horse's foot, as one does. He said the blood on his clothing must have come from his many falls on his bicycle when he rode back in France. And of course, there was the time he accidentally shot himself. Some of the blood surely came from that. So, if all this can be explained away, what's with him running away with no explanation from his wife and his employer? He said he was just sick of his wife, always wanting to be the boss and never lending him any money. Which is interesting, since she was there, probably sitting in the front row supporting him. So, on the day he decided to leave Louisville, he went and withdrew a bunch of money from their bank account He tried to get a train to San Francisco, but realized it was too expensive, so he went to New Orleans instead. And once there, he had trouble finding work, so then he moved on to Houston. For work. All of this was for work, not to throw off police. Then eventually he moved on to California, where he was, of course, arrested. Interestingly, Lena's brother did testify on behalf of Joseph and said yes, He had, in fact, borrowed a knife from his brother-in-law to remove a nail from a horse's foot. Toward the end of the trial, there seemed to have been a lot of back and forth about the reward money. A lot of people felt entitled to it. A lot of people were concerned about who was going to get it. And if that money had possibly motivated anyone to lie or mislead anyone about anything throughout the investigation. So this was a big point of contention. And then finally, after that, they brought things to a close. Fred Kellner was called to the stand a third and final time when it was clarified that he had the remains buried in his plot in the St. Louis Cemetery, but no, he was not there. The jury reached their verdict, 
just after 10 p.m. on December 3rd, 1910, just shy of a year after Alma's disappearance. They found Joseph Wendling guilty, but had not opted for the death penalty. Later, it was learned that at first it had been seven to five when the death penalty was on the table, but when they were able to agree on a conviction and a life sentence, they were able to come to a unanimous agreement. The decision was appealed, but it was denied in 1911. Joseph Wendling went first to the state prison on the banks of the Kentucky River, which was flooded and subsequently closed after 1937. While in prison, Joseph spent his time learning how to become an electrician and radio technician. After a while, he even became the prison's official electrician. In 1918, he helped catch a fellow inmate who had tried to escape. All in all, he was on very good behavior. Until he wasn't. On August 22, 1919, Joseph was working in the electrical shop at the prison when he asked permission to go and visit the warden. This was around 7 a.m., but he didn't go visit the warden. Instead, he put on a pair of overalls from the workshop, picked up a toolbox, and told a guard on the perimeter of the prison yard that he'd been sent to repair a light on the outside. The guard led him up on a ladder over the prison wall and Joseph walked away to freedom. Prison guards and local police recruited several civilians to help them search for Joseph once they realized he'd escaped. Some tips came in the very next day, but nothing of substance. After what I can only imagine were a few extremely stressful days, the police finally located him. They got a call from a man named C.E. Newman in Frankfurt, around midnight on the 26th of August. Newman's daughter had seen a man peeping through her window and screamed, and the father came running into the room, firing a shot at the peeping Tom. The man then ducked into an alley and was spotted by a Frankfurt patrolman shortly after. Joseph had both a gun and a knife in his possession. Before he had time to grab either weapon, Officer Scott struck him over the head with a club and he was escorted back to prison. He told police he'd been hiding in the attic of the old Capitol building, where he'd actually gone on work release to do some electrical work in the past. When they went to search the location, they found women's clothing he'd been using as a disguise, plus some food stashed away and a few stolen items. Things really didn't go well for Joseph after his escape. He was already serving a life sentence, so the only further punishment they could really implement was a loss of privileges. So all the lax treatment for good behavior went out the window, and he started being considered a, quote, third-class prisoner by the warden, meaning he was in a category with the meanest killers in the prison. He had to walk with a ball and chain after After a second escape attempt, when he almost got away again, the county judge and the mayor went over to the warden and basically told him he was not equipped to handle this guy, so they were going to take him to Eddyville. 
Once Joseph got to Eddyville, there was only one thing on his mind, parole. But seven years went by and he sat in a prison cell and on August 2nd, 1928, he wrote a letter to True Detective Magazine in New York City. It said, quote, Dear Sir, I am writing you this letter to find out if you will do me a favor. I am an inmate of the Kentucky State Penitentiary at this town and am serving a life sentence for a conviction that was handed down by the jury of Jefferson County, Kentucky, for the murder of this little girl that is the center of the topic in your story titled The Crime That Rocked a Continent. And I wish to add to this that I am an innocent man, have no connection whatever with this mystery, as it is absolutely the work of someone else and not me. I am eligible for parole and have the consideration of the parole committee, which sits at this institution every three months, and I am asking you that if this story published in your magazine is true, as to the characters and the incidents related in the story mentioned above, will you be so kind as to make affidavit to this effect, stating in it that the confession mentioned in this story is true? Kind sir, you have no idea what or how much this will mean to me if same can be gotten. I have served 18 years for this crime, and I am as innocent of it as you are. And I verily believe that if you could do this, if it is a true confession, it will be the gate to my parole and release. Yours respectfully, Joseph Wendling. Now, hold on to this. I'm going to get back to it in a minute. In all the time that he'd been incarcerated, Joseph applied for clemency at least 10 times, but it was never granted. But then, in 1934, after 23 years, Frank Fair withdrew his opposition to parole. But only if Joseph agreed to two things. First, he would have to confess. Second, he would have to be deported. It was alleged that Fair had a long letter from Joseph where Joseph had implicated himself without coming outright and saying he did it, but that letter was never made public. Shortly after this, the warden made a report that Joseph had been a good prisoner at Eddyville, not ever getting into any serious trouble since he'd been transferred there. So, on January 25th, 1935, a Louisville headline read that Joseph Wendling would be paroled and deported back to France. And the plan would be for the warden himself to escort Joseph to New York to personally put him on a ship to his home country. The newspaper article that day noted that Joseph was in prison in Kentucky longer than, quote, any other sane prisoner in the state's penal history. On February 2nd, 1935, he was to board a ship that would take him across the ocean to the small farm where his parents lived. The newspaper article that day went on to say, quote, The old prisoner radiated happiness with every movement early this morning when he stepped eagerly to Warden Logan's Greywald office for perhaps his last full interview. The flush of joy and excitement somehow had banished the pallor of prison from his round face. He had just been told by the warden that he was a free man at last. Wendling referred to the crime as the case. He refused to say anything about Mr. Fair, 
other than to express his appreciation for what he had done and called him a very fine man. But we're left with so many questions when Joseph goes back to France. Obviously, the big one being, did he do it? But also, what was going on between he and Frank Fair? What caused him to change his mind about Joseph? And what did the Kellner family have to say about this? When he was released, he was met by his wife, Lena, who escorted him first to Louisville, where they met with some old friends, and then they went to catch the train to New York, accompanied by the warden. He got to spend two days and three nights sightseeing, and he was allowed to venture out without handcuffs or shackles because the warden said he trusted him to do the right thing. He told the warden his plan was to work the family farm when he got home. As planned, on February 2nd, 1935, he boarded a ship headed for France. And what's really interesting is the version of his story told in France was apparently very different. He was considered, quote, an innocent Frenchman who was the persecuted victim of an American mistake. Now, remember the story from that magazine that Joseph responded to? Here's the deal with that. In September 1913, a mutilated female body was recovered in the East River, and the main suspect was a Catholic priest named Hans Schmidt. And when he was investigated, he crumbled and confessed almost immediately. But what caught the attention of Louisvillians was that this fellow Hans had spent time in Louisville from summer of 1909 until April of 1910. Remember, Alma was murdered in December of 1909, and they found her body in May. To make things even more interesting, Hans Schmidt told police that this woman he killed in New York was his new bride, and that he had slit her throat, cut her up, wrapped her body parts in five separate bundles, and dumped them into the water from a ferry. Now, Get this, he said he did all of this because he was, quote, commanded to sacrifice her by his patron saint, St. Elizabeth of Hungary. He also had to drink some of her blood, apparently. And it's confusing because there were some reports that he had also confessed to murdering Alma. But then in other reports, he would take it all back and maintain his innocence. And... I think Hans was just so off his rocker, to be honest. So Hans went to trial, and he did plead insanity, which resulted in a mistrial. He was tried again on February 4th, 1914, and was subsequently convicted of the murder in New York and sentenced to death. The priest he spoke with while he was on death row urged him to officially confess to the murder of Alma Kellner before he was executed, but he didn't do that. The priest was executed via the electric chair at Sing Sing Prison on February 18th. As I mentioned at the beginning, St. John's Church is now the St. John Center for Homeless Men. The other buildings on the property were torn down. The original Kellner home was also torn down. The train station is now Union Station and is used for TARC buses instead of trains. And as I mentioned earlier, The Frankfurt Penitentiary was demolished after severe flooding, 
but the Kentucky State Penitentiary, aka Eddyville, is still very much operational. When he was released, Joseph was met by his wife, Lena, who escorted him first to Louisville, where they met with some old friends, and then to the train station to head for New York, where he got to spend two days and three nights sightseeing, accompanied by the warden. He was allowed to venture out without handcuffs or shackles because the warden said he trusted him to do the right thing. As planned, on February 2nd, 1935, he boarded a ship headed for France. And what's interesting is the version of his story told in France was apparently very different. He was considered, quote, an innocent Frenchman who was the persecuted victim of an American mistake. Now, remember the story from that magazine that Joseph responded to? Here's the deal with that. In September 1913, a mutilated female body was recovered in the East River. The main suspect was a Catholic priest named Hans Schmidt, and when he was investigated, he crumbled and confessed almost immediately. But what caught the attention of Louisvillians was that this fellow Hans had spent time in Louisville from summer of 1909 until April 1910. Remember, Alma was murdered in December of 1909, and they found her body in May the next year. Hans Schmidt told police that this woman he killed in New York was his new bride, that he'd slit her throat, cut her up, wrapped her body parts in five separate bundles, and dumped them into the water from a ferry. And he said he did all this because he was, quote, commanded to sacrifice her by his patron saint, St. Elizabeth of Hungary. He also said he had to drink some of her blood, so it's confusing because there were some reports that he'd also confessed to murdering Alma, but then in other reports he'd take it all back and maintain his innocence. So, as you could probably guess, Hans went to trial and he pled insanity, and at first this resulted in a mistrial. But he was tried again on February 4th, 1914, and was subsequently convicted of the murder in New York and sentenced to death. And the priest he spoke with while he was on death row urged him to officially confess to the murder of Alma Kellner before he was executed, but he didn't. And the priest was executed via the electric chair at Sing Sing Prison on February 18th. As I mentioned at the beginning, St. John's Church is now the St. John Center for Homeless Men. The other buildings on the property were torn down, and the original Kellner home was also torn down. The train station is now Union Station and is for TARC buses instead of trains, and as I mentioned earlier, the Frankfurt Penitentiary was demolished after severe flooding, but the Kentucky State Penitentiary, aka Eddyville, is still very much operational. So here are my thoughts on all of this. And if you don't care to listen to my take on this, 
You can use this time instead to go to anchor.fm slash jesse-bartholomew and support the show for 99 cents a month. But if you do want to hear what I think, I'm going to tell you. First of all, and I'm not sure how this happened, and I'm not sure that many of you will even get this reference, but as soon as he was introduced, I could only picture Father Schumann as Brother Justin from the show Carnival. (laughs) And, um... He was just, like, the bad guy from the start to me. And maybe I'm totally off and he's totally innocent and that's fine. Um, But I just feel like he wasn't looked into enough. And he was obviously around during that time. So how, how much did they look into his activity that day? And isn't it a little weird that Frank Fair was visiting the church the day that Joseph took off? Um, If you're a conspiracy theorist, that's, you know that's a thing. So then the family, right? The family is kind of weird too. Some of the police officers said that they thought the family was acting suspicious and that they might have something to do with it. And remember they said they weren't helping to provide like all of the information that they needed. And they also thought it was weird that they didn't call the police sooner. And then neither of the parents went to identify the remains. And a part of me is like, I completely understand that. It would be nearly impossible to do. But for me, I also feel like I would need that closure. I would need to see for myself once and for all that that was my kid in there. And I just don't think I would be able to really like have closure if I didn't know that for myself. And they also didn't go to the funeral. And I just think it's strange. And... You know, also, Alma's dad, the the statement he gave to police the day after she went missing, it already sounded like he was really convinced she was dead. And I'm not sure that the day after my kid went missing, I would be so sure. It, it was just weird. So, yeah, some of their statements were weird. Um, just, you know, of course I'd like to know more, but it was over a century ago, so kind of SOL there. Now... I think my money might be on the other janitor who I kept wanting to call Benedict Arnold throughout the whole thing, but his name is Benedict Thomas. So he knew that he went to mass that morning. He knew the exact hours he worked that day, and he knew that he went to an evening church service all on the day that she went missing. But he couldn't remember that day if he was still living on church property or not. I mean, that's sketchy to me. I feel like if you would remember everything else about the day, you would remember where you went home that night. I don't know. I wish we knew more about him. He seems like a good suspect. Now, as for Joseph and Lena, their relationship. Joseph said that he left because he wanted to get away from her. But when he gets back, they're like a couple again, right? And she's even with him all the way, like, until he leaves for France. So, I don't know. It could just be, like, they made up because of the seriousness of the situation or whatever. Their relationship, I wish I knew more about. Also, the bloodstains on his clothing and the knife and the razors, that stuff could be explained away. Like, his brother-in-law testified under oath that he did use... Um, Joseph's knife to remove a nail from his horse's foot. And there was no physical evidence that put him in the cellar or the furnace room. In fact, there was that watch band down there that wasn't his. 
And was he really such a cold-blooded killer that he could hang around and give the police the grand tour calmly when he knew the body of Alma was nearby? I don't know. Um, you know, I think this case lives on because it's a great example, I think, of how the judicial system has improved in the past century. Of course, I'm the first to admit it's still a very broken system and we have a long way to go, but I don't know, if he went on trial today, would you vote to convict him? I'm not sure I would. So let me know what you think. Send an email to kyhistoryhaunts at gmail.com. DM me on Twitter and Instagram at kyhistoryhaunts. And follow the Facebook page, Kentucky History and Haunts.